Do you love NASCAR and all things racing? Then you've come to the right place. I'm Derek Cope. And I'm Alicia Cope. We are your hosts. And here on Race Theory, we talk about all things asphalt racing. Our life on the road, maintaining good sponsor relationships, as well as balancing our work and family life as a team. Stick around. And hopefully our tips and experiences will help you reach your own goals. Welcome back. This is Race Theory. This is episode 16, and we are entering 2020 race season. And certainly we had made some plans uh, to get ready for Daytona and get, uh, get going in 2020. And we we're fortunate enough that the race cars that I had purchased were going to get to amortize over another year because the next-gen car was running behind. So it really was uh, something that really I was pleased about. And it was a godsend, really, once we got that announcement. So felt like that, uh, you know, from a profitability standpoint, it was going to be very good for us. And then we'd also um, made, uh, had a discussion with an agent and signed a young man, uh, a rookie, Quinn Hauf, and started to get ready for Daytona. Uh, Quinn was a, a raw rookie. Uh, I mean, the real epitome of the word. He didn't have a great deal of experience, but a nice young man. And, you know, he was enthusiastic and was willing to, you know, to do whatever it took. And, uh, you know, he was a, he was a sponge, you know, for um, the first, first season here, trying to really learn and ascertain what it would take to become proficient uh, in and out of the car. And he was really great with the sponsors as well. Um, something that Landon didn't participate in a whole lot. He was um, very eager to uh, do outside driver appearances, to go to um, extra lengths to make sure that he made relationships and, and, um, and kept those with the sponsors. So, you know, we had a lot of optimism going into 2020. Um, as you always say, guardedly optimistic because we knew he was so inexperienced. We didn't really know quite what to expect. He hadn't even been to half the racetracks. But um, we were, um, you know, on a on a happy note, you know, going in. Little did we know what would happen. Yes. Uh, he and his girlfriend, Liz, uh, they were, you know, they were excited about the opportunity. And, you know, we were getting ready. For, wife by that time. By that time, his mm -hmm. wife, Liz. And uh, so they, you know, they... We're getting ready for Daytona and, you know, a lot of excitement uh, for he and his family, you know, getting ready for the Daytona 500. And we, um, you know, we pretty much uh, embarked on that and we got to Daytona and it was kind of like it had been. We were we were relatively decent uh, as far as on off the truck. Uh, the car handled good. I think he did a nice job and he felt comfortable, you know, and was just trying to learn the draft more so than anything. And we got through the 150 and qualifying, and then the race uh, ran, and he was doing a nice job there. Uh, he was paying attention and listening and, uh, you know, was just was hanging in there relatively well and uh, moving back and forward and, you know, making a few mistakes, but would learn from them. And then, you know, was running right there uh, in the middle of the pack there and, you know, was kind of working with a group and one with Al, uh, Al Marola. And basically, I think, I mean, they got a run on him and he made a, a move to block and uh, Al Marola turned him and put him in the fence. And so that kind of. And that was that. Yeah, that was it. It ended our day early and he didn't get a chance to really run the entire race, which he needed that experience. But, you know, it was a lesson that uh, he learned. And I think he realized then that, you know, this is you're playing with the big boys and they don't tolerate a lot of, you know, a lot of things. And 
you know, but again, uh, he did a nice job and uh, I think he had a lot to be proud of when uh, he left Daytona. But once again, we were in the pits of despair leaving the Daytona 500 as would always be my experience with that racetrack, my love hate relationship with it. Well, you're a bit jaded. So, uh, but anyways, it is what it is and you have to leave there and you have to take it on the chin and go home and get ready. And, you know, we had made those choices on those new cars and I thought we were really ready to go and, and go to Atlanta. And I was looking forward to going there. And, um, and I know he was, and we, we, we got to Atlanta and we had just got to the racetrack. We had gotten our bus and, uh, we're waiting, you know, for the garage to open and we, and the diner was there getting ready to go. And we got the word that they were canceling the race because of COVID. And at that point, it was pretty shocking because COVID hadn't really hit North Carolina very hard yet. And we we were not even uh, screening at that point. And I think everyone was very upset with the decision. But it was in Atlanta, Georgia. And Georgia was experiencing higher COVID outbreaks. Plus, I think some other forms of sport you know, we're stopping quickly. Well, and putting a lot of pressure on NASCAR to make that decision. There was a lot of of, um, of government um, chitter-chatter about the fact that NASCAR is continuing when other major sports had stopped. Yeah, so I think it was uh, a decision that was made that they needed to, to pull back and, and conform, and they... I'm not so sure they, they needed so. to at that point. No, but in, they in did, my opinion, you know, it's an outside sport. It's in the outdoors, but um, but yeah, it is what it is, and and we were shut down, and we were shut down for six weeks. We had several calls with NASCAR, uh, and talking about what was on the you know the projection for time frames and what they wanted from each of the teams. You know, as far as you know, people they really wanted the teams to shut down and wanted nobody at the facilities. So some teams uh, were running on, you know, small amounts of people working and maybe coming in and, and, and then they would trade off just to keep some people uh, coming in and out. But those are the larger teams that had sponsorship and, and, you know, larger sums of money. And we were relatively small and we pretty much a, a, in a collective decision with the owners and ourselves, you know, that they were going to shut down, uh, for, well, there was no, there was no way that we could continue those six weeks, not having a purse coming in. We're a small team and we rely on the purse. And even though we did have a funded driver, that is the majority of our income is going to be coming from that. And we did have sponsors, um, that were upset with the news as well. Incredibly. So, um, some, you know, more disgruntled than others. And we were going to promise them other races, you know, at the end of the year, which would, you know, definitely hurt our opportunities to fill those sponsorship places with paid sponsorships. But um, what was the hardest thing and probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life was making those phone calls to each one of our staff. Because these people are not only those that work for us, but they're an extended, you know, members of our family. We know their their wives, their young kids, their their grandparents, you know, a lot of them you've known in the sport for you know, over 30 years and to call each one of them and tell them that they're not going to get paid for six weeks was, was so agonizing. And, um, you just felt useless. 
um, we did have um, a generous offer by the owners to offer them what, what we called a retention pay if they stayed with us and didn't seek other work during that time. Um, well, or if they came back, basically, they could certainly work during that time. But as long as they return to their position and their pay um, at the end of this COVID shutdown, when we went back, when NASCAR allowed us to go back to racing, if they were to come back, then they were to get six weeks of basically paid vacation, which I felt was a very generous offer. However, it's not going to help those families that live paycheck to paycheck. I mean, we're talking about some really young families where the husbands are the major breadwinners um, or, you know, um, people that are on a fixed income. So even though they agreed that, yeah, that's all great, but that doesn't feed our families at this point in time. And I just hated making every single one of those phone calls. Um, once again, I, I just, uh, I can't express the feeling of futility um, when that when that happens. And I'm sure listeners out there that are business owners that have experienced the same type of COVID shutdowns, um, that really was a heartbreaking time. I think the one thing that was kind of a salvation was the fact that we had been racing already and the employees were able to get, you know, to go um, get unemployment and they were able to create some revenue uh, and, you know, the subsidy coming in. In North Carolina, though, unemployment is very low. Yeah. I mean, you can't live on unemployment where you can in some other states. But it was it was a hard time and it was a difficult time. And you you're constantly having phone calls from them asking, you know, where we're at and you know obviously someone wanted to do something feeling like we needed to be ready so if we did get the chance to go back racing how soon how ready would we be as a race team so you know everybody's trying to find a way to work and do something and they're willing to do anything Anything, mop the floors go in work on outside projects um it it was a real like um you know time where they were trying to find anything and everything that they could do to make a little bit of extra money. And it, it was hard because you can't do one and not do the rest. Correct. So it was, it was heart, heartbreaking really, you know, and I think, you know, we was, all we could really do was do what the owner said and, you know, and make those calls and then to offer the retention pay. And, you know, fortunately enough, you know, um, NASCAR was one of the first to really go back and find a way to work within the confines and the restrictions of the CDC and, you know, outside influences and perception in the marketplace would be. And they implemented, you know, so many things into the system to where they would have checks and balances at the racetracks, on your airplanes. You know, we would have to be able to check temperatures as people came in the facilities. We had to report back to NASCAR. You know, there was so many elements that they were working on to try to get this thing in a position where they felt like that they could come back first. And I have to applaud them because the things they did, you know, they worked, I'm sure, hard with, you know, all the states themselves because they had to start dealing with, was we raced 36 weekends a year and we're in a lot of states. And some states are way more strict than others. Yeah, some so that's wouldn't. why we spent a lot of time at Darlington in South Carolina because it was much less strict, whereas you go to other states. I mean, there were some states we just simply could not go to at all. Yes. And I think NASCAR at that time was really working with, you know, the local, you know, um, 
communities of the races that were going, trying to understand really what the complexion was like in all of those areas and trying to come up with a, you know, a comprehensive plan to allow us to go back to those venues and work within the communities and things to make sure that, you know, we were, you know, staying in our own bubble. Staying in our own and, bubble. And I feel they did a really good job on that because NASCAR would actually give us protocols for every race. And so at every staff meeting that we would have every Tuesday, we would go over, this is the protocol for this race and this area and this community. And again, some are more, um, you know, strict than others, but NASCAR was very, very direct. You do not get out of your car. You always have a mask on. You do the questionnaire. You do not go to outside restaurants. If you want to Uber Eats or you want to order a pizza and have it delivered to your hotel room, that is great. But they do not want to see you in outside restaurants, you know, in in large gatherings. You know, a lot of times restaurants were closed anyway. But we were one of the teams that took that to the fullest extent. And we told our people that is grounds for dismissal. If we see you um, at the bar, we see or we hear that you're there. Obviously, we wouldn't be seeing you. Um and also wearing masks inside the vehicles because, you know, we couldn't rent a car for every individual employee. Crews come in in vans, you know, but we did restrict it to minivans had only four people. Cars only had two. Um, one was in the back seat. I mean, and, and NASCAR was really good about making sure that they had this CDC liaison and what was coming down because we knew nothing about COVID um, contagion at that point you know, is it two feet? Is it three feet? Is it spittum? Is it other things? Is it, you know, is it just breathing? And so every time they would get new knowledge to the CDC, they would filter that through NASCAR. And NASCAR never tried to, to cover anything up, you know, in their defense. They were like, this is the, the latest information about COVID and we're going to follow it. And it really was a blessing because we were able to get back and actually start making a living again. And um, so it did only last six weeks, but it could have lasted all year long. It was interesting, I think, because obviously at that time, um, you know, something, you know, changes or something good can come out of a situation like that. And I think that there was a real lack for people to, you know, have access to motorsports or sports in general or things on television to watch. And then that's when iRacing uh, simulated yeah, If there's anyone that racing. benefited a hundred million fold, it was iRacing. Yeah. I think everybody started trying to look at an avenue to, you know, create some content for television. And that's where, you know, the network's got together and put their heads together and they started working on putting where the actual cup drivers would actually participate in races that would be virtual NASCAR racing. So they were trying to do things that... And they were doing that before we even went back racing. That is correct. So they were doing a lot of things, but they just started, you know, trying to go, you know, further down the the road and create more excitement, do more things, involve more drivers. And so then the drivers got on board and started procuring their own SIM machines and building their SIMs or buying a SIM or leasing a SIM. Yourself included. Exactly. So everybody was just trying to do something to occupy their time, stay engaged in motorsports and your racing and your team and wait for on a daily basis, you know, anything that would lead you to believe that, you know, something was, you know, coming down the pipe, there was light at the end of the tunnel. And certainly NASCAR was doing everything they could do to try to be first in line. And I think that was something that they, you know, if you look at really what they do, 
they're like the only sport really that runs 36 weekends a year that goes from February to November. So they, you know, and trying to find weeks to make up races, if they couldn't get to a race or they had to take those six races that we missed, they had to start implementing those or trying to run two times a weekend or do what they had to do to catch up and can, you know, put some sense of what this race season would of normalcy would be to keep the points and all those things going. And forward. it really was remarkable that we were able to make up all of those races. I was able to give those sponsors those races. It might not have been the exact race that they wanted, but every single one of those sponsors got a race that they paid for. And it really helped us as a team because we did not have to refund any of those sponsorships, which was huge for us. Um, Initially, we thought we were going to lose that money as well. And going back racing, um, it definitely elevated the viewership because everyone was hungry for live sports on TV, any sport. And we were the first back. And so I think it tripled our viewership, um, you know, for the first several months, which definitely helped, um, especially from a marketing standpoint. And, um, and yeah, we, all of a sudden we were able to make our paychecks again and get these guys back working. And it, it really was, a novelty that NASCAR was able to do that in the midst of an environment where everyone was still really shut down. And, um, and it gave, gave America and, and the world something to watch and something to look forward to. And, and have to say, iRacing, um, something that I was never interested in. It definitely elevated iRacing to people that probably would never have watched it. And now they were engaged in that as well. So again, we were, you know, told and that ahead of the actual race, you know, there was, you know, thoughts of what we could do and they come up with a plan and then it would be altered. But, you know, Darlington being really on the, on the focal point of being the first race that we would come back to and it was close to home. So it was a situation where we didn't have to utilize airplanes. We didn't have to utilize hotels we could drive down and we could actually drive home if we wanted to or if we had a bus or a motorhome you could stay in that but you had to stay confined so the drivers had to stay in a bubble they could not have access to the personnel they could have not access to the races at all and what they would do is they would physically come in there would be no practice and no qualifying and they would come in and you would uh, the, the teams would come in sporadically on a timetable where the teams would come in at a certain point, you'd go through your, your first of all, you'd go through a check system to get in, you're checking your temperature and all your vital signs. If there's anything that you know showed signs, you were pulled aside. And 24 and hours through. earlier than that, you had to go through a questionnaire before you even went to the track. Exactly. So there's all kinds of, of check systems. And then when you went through there, they had you know in timetables where the teams would go in periodically through the day and get their cars through inspection, put them on the line, and then they were to go and remove themselves and try to stay, you know, away from everybody else, right? And stay outside, not in transporters. Then the next group would come in and, and all along and then keep going. And then the drivers would come in and physically go to their cars. Everybody had masks on and would try to get in a position to get in the cars and, and facilitate the, the race itself. So it and was, it, it really did prove that if you followed protocol, which NASCAR was not going to let anybody not follow it because we're, we're on TV. So we weren't going to get in trouble for that and get shut down. And, um, 2,500 people, I think is what 
were allowed to come because obviously um, PR and marketing like myself, we weren't allowed to come for those, you know, first couple months coming back, but just essential crew and essential NASCAR uh, officials and crew and admin, about 2,500 people at each track. And we did not have a COVID case for many, many months. I mean, there might have been some private ones we didn't know about, but um, for the most part, I mean, per capita, we had a very low percentage rate of anyone getting COVID. And I think the thing that was, you know, most important was the fact that we conveyed to our people that, you know, we are a small team. We have a small amount of people. We don't want to go back to, you know, if, cause if you show signs, we, you know, we're checking your temperatures. If you come in, if you have any sense of a sign that you have something, you will not be coming to work. And, you know, but we had to understand to them, make them understand that this is our livelihoods. And if, you know, we, and you understand we have a charter. So if you or a group of our people get sick or off outside doing things you shouldn't be doing right. And you become, you know, infected and you, and it starts to run rampant through our group of people, then it compromises our ability to go to the racetrack. If we don't have people to go to the racetrack, you know, we cannot take our car to the racetrack. And it's part of the charter that we have to come to those races. So there was a lot riding on it, right? And, you know, we really just had to be mindful of all those things and be very strict. And I think that was the hardest thing was, you know, when somebody, you know, you thought had something or people would do something maybe out of line or weren't wearing their masks, you had to scold them and say, you know, get your mask on. Yeah. You felt, I felt like a mother hen and a referee and a, you know, I felt like the, the mask police, you know, it, it really was difficult because I'd hear reports of people going to the bars or so-and-so went out to eat with another race team group of people. And we're just, please, please, we're pleading with them. You know, we, we cannot, our, our organization is so small that, you know, in a group of 20, you know, we get COVID and we're all out sick. And like you said, we can't literally cannot get ourselves to the track. And when people did start getting, when obviously as, you know, COVID ran, you know, through the year, you know, by the end of the summer, beginning of the fall, you were, were actually hearing of COVID cases. And, you know, uh, you and I actually had our, um, you know, we definitely had to practice what we preach because we had to quarantine our daughter and um, she had gotten COVID from school and we um, actually left the house. We were at a race when um, she was diagnosed. And so you went to a hotel and I was in the bus. And so all three of us lived apart for two weeks, and that was very difficult with a 16-year-old daughter at home all by herself. It had to literally, um, you know, drop off her food and toiletries at the front door, knock on the door and and see her through the glass. And, you know, she's crying and she's lonely. And I mean, it was a horrible time, but it was so important that we not jeopardize anything at that period of time. And, you know, of course, you know, the time would tell how how badly some people got COVID. Some people got very mild cases. Some didn't even know they had it, were asymptomatic, you know, like myself. But it was um, it was very interesting um, that year and, and how it went. But I think, honestly, from a racing standpoint, it could have been a lot worse. And I think it was handled actually pretty well. But who suffered the the most that we haven't talked about is Quinn himself. Yes. I think here you got a young man who you know, in his first full season of cup, really, right, you know, is 
you know, a raw rookie, he's not getting a chance, you know, to, to race and time's going by. Then we get the opportunity to come back and, you know, here he is, he's thrusted into a situation where he's going to racetracks that he's never been before and has to go out and race and, you know, find his way. And it was, it was really unfair for him and you had to feel for him and he was just learning on the fly. So, you know, he was really having to take it all in and you know, everybody was having to be understanding and we had to just, you know, spend a lot of time, you know, working through all those things and then critiquing things afterwards and have our competition meetings and just try to, you know, make some sense of what, you know, he was feeling and what problems we were having and to try to rectify those. So we, we worked really closely together. Everybody was working hard, but it was really difficult on him and, you know, that's the one thing that I, I feel so bad about was that he really did not get a fair shake at his rookie year. And, you know, it was unfortunate, you know, but, you know, the one thing that it did do is it really set a precedent, I think, for way racing is now as well, because you, they went to the racetracks, the teams were having to prepare race cars with no practice, no checking of the systems and go and running the races and having them perform well and not have failures and have miscues. The drivers were having to go out there and, you know, basically race with no practice. You know, no, I mean, if they hadn't been in the racetrack before, like Quinn, they were having to, you know, really figure things out. Well, you were learning about your car and doing adjustments in the, race. the first 20 laps. So the first 20 laps were quite entertaining because the, those were the, usually that's when a lot of things happen because you really don't know your car and but, you don't know what that first turn is going to happen. But they had their competition caution each time, which yes. allowed, you know, to you to be able to go out, get a sense of what and you And isn't have. that when they implemented those? That is correct. They, 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 the competition because cautions were based on that to give us a time, you know, and they would do that before if there was weather uh, related ones. But this was a deal where they would do the, the competition cautions so that we could um, somehow, you know, uh, learn about your car exactly and then have opportunity to come in under the the green mm -hmm. i mean under the caution i mean and then basically you know, make some adjustments give him a chance to discuss some things tell him some of the things we needed to do to rectify right and then we would be able to watch smt and go back through those things and then talk about that with him so it really was a a real change of how you approached a race and it was it was interesting and you know but it was certainly eerie because there's nobody in the stands you know i've been racing i've been racing for a long time right since the 80s and i was in the sport at real heyday when you're averaging 190 200,000 people per event you can't walk in or out of the place uh just and the atmosphere is is wonderful and then here you are at darlington and there is nobody there and it's just you and the race car and the race team and the noises and you know it's just and again, it was kind of, it was kind of interesting because once you got into the race and it got started, you weren't really paying attention to the stands. You weren't paying attention to people not being there and you were really wrapped up and absorbed in the race again. So, but you, when caution would come or whatever, you normally would, you know, a wreck would happen. You didn't hear the people, you didn't hear the fans. And then you knew there was nothing going on. So it was just, it was just eerie to some regard. Right. And I was almost like the more, when I was testing it, uh, after the, you know, nine eleven, and we went to test at Kansas, and there was no planes, no people, no nothing, and you know, it's just, 
it's just odd because you're, you know, there's so many optics that you're used to seeing, right? And it's, it's drastically different. So it was just a, a time where a lot of changes happened and uh, things kept escalating. And, and then, you know, we were able to, you know, start to go to other venues because we kind of were bouncing back and forth to some local racetracks, you know, to be able to get to and from. And, you know, it was, it was a different dynamic. And they were just trying to make sure that we could race every week somewhere sometimes it was you know a double a double race right and then xfinity started after that they would come in and run their race and then we would run our race and you know so it was just a lot going on but really they pulled off a masterful plan and i think you really have to look at what they did and how many variables there were and extenuating circumstances that they had to overcome to pull this thing off in the way that they did, along with television, collectively, it, it was probably, I think, one of the most, you know, interesting and things that I've, I've seen and been a part of. And successful, And really. successful, right? So Because we didn't lose our sponsorships. We didn't lose title sponsorships. We didn't lose viewership. We actually gained it. Yes. Of course, the tracks were the ones that missed out because they didn't have the population in the stands. But the teams themselves made money. The one thing our sport is different like is that a lot of people don't understand that, you know, the television package really is what the actual racetracks got a percentage of and the teams that, you know, and, and were in the purses. So you were, you were actually, the television is what really paid for your ability to go perform and get paid and pay people in contrast to other places where you're, you're expecting the gate to pay for it. And, you know, you got people, you're waiting for spectators and people to come in and part of that pays that out, which was not the case. So a very unique dynamic with the, with the way that NASCAR and motor racing is structured. So it really allowed for us to race with no fans. And, you know, and then I think as a whole, the NASCAR itself realized so much more about what the teams were capable of doing, what they were capable of doing. And they started trying to look at alternative ways to, you know, not bring as many people, not go to the racetrack for as many days. And that's where we just started migrating towards the, like the concept that we have now where there is, you know, this, you know, changing of qualifying and practice. It used to be a four day event, Thursday to Sunday. That's what we're used to. And then it became a two day event. And I think what they realized was we can do it in that amount of time. There was a lot of hurry up and wait in, in NASCAR of old, you know, where you, you did something and then you sat around and waited all day and then you did something else. Um, kind of like the way the Trans Am series is now, you know, very relaxed atmosphere, but you know, in NASCAR, it was expensive because you are paying per diem, hotel, food, you know, we had our at-track catering company, you know, which, um, you know, would have, um, that was the one thing that did get hit pretty hard at, during COVID, um, that, and we managed to, to keep it, um, keep it living, but, um, certainly, um, we would have definitely made a much more, um, bigger success of Starcom Racing Diner had we not had COVID because those poor boys had to stand outside and had to repackage the the food because there couldn't be a buffet, which is what they were used to. They had to do it in a certified kitchen. They had to, you know, wear gloves and have all the protocol. And then they had to have one person from one team come out and pick all the food up. So it definitely was coordination um, nightmare, but they were able to pull it off and, and keep it. But, you know, back to my, um, original point, you know, you're, you're doing all of these things 
based off of, um, you know, four days and then you get, you know, down to two and yeah, it's a little bit quicker and, uh, and you're, you know, you might be running your butt off a little bit more, but you realize that, yeah, this can be done qualifying practice two practices, even all of the inspection, everything can be done in that period of time. And the teams wanted it because they realized, you know, like you, the general manager crunching the numbers, you realized how much money you saved by not being there for four days. And, um, and also on, um, you know, during that time of COVID, you know, we weren't paying for tires and we weren't paying as much time on the engine and, and, you know, other things. So there wasn't a great loss without some gain there. Yeah. The elements of, you know, how much time you put on the engines, you know, was something that was critical for us as well. You know, I'm, I'm running our own engines and we're running the engine so many races and you have to change valve springs, uh, because of you know, the type of packages that we were running. So, you started to feel like that you could see that, you know, the engines were going longer and you were not having to spend as much money on because you were limiting the amount of miles or the cycles that the engines were running on. So, you know, from a business perspective, there was a lot of other intangibles that you had to start entering into the equation and you could start to see where, you know, you were able to, to cut costs and, you know, work on some other things, right. And do some more, some more things in other areas. Right. So again, it was, it was the, one of those years where you really had to think outside the box. You were stimulated by ideas and, and then, you know, and keeping an eye on outside, you know, variables and things happening every week. So you were on edge all the time, just waiting for the next ball to drop. But at the same time, looking forward because we were having some success, we we're getting to the racetrack and we we're getting races in. Again, I just felt like that you know, we weren't going to be able to be as productive as we hoped. And Quinn wasn't going to be able to get the, you know, what he deserved for his time in the seat. And that was the most, you know, I think disruptive thing, but he did a really nice job. He started making inroads and started finding, you know, speed in the car. And I think he was starting to feel a lot more comfortable. And, uh, we just kept, kept working collectively together and, uh, you know, everybody pulled together and they did a really nice job. And like anything, you're going to have wrecks, you're going to have problems. And, you know, the biggest problem with a lot of that's always social media and, you know, people taking a beating because of, you know, something that happens on the racetrack. And our driver, you know, was not immune to that. You know, he had some mistakes and some things happened and, you know, was beat up on social media and you feel for him because, you know, nobody takes anything into consideration that here's a guy who really is learning right? And then he's thrust into situations like this. And then you want to go beat him up after, you know, he's made a mistake, right? And um, it's just all eyes are upon you because, you know, there's nobody, everybody's watching on television and watching streaming and watching everything that they can view the race from. And everybody's got every eye on you. And then well, everybody and wants to say of, you know, they want to, they want to put their two cents into everything, right? And then it just turned into a difficult year from that standpoint, I think for Quinn and his family and, you know, and um, some commentators are not very kind either, you know, and when they're replaying it over and over and over again and, and the broadcast, it keeps replaying a mistake that he made, like the one at Texas, that was, um, you know, even if say they had been watching that race and they wouldn't have really saw that wreck, but it was constantly replayed. And I think that's, and that's also where social media comes in is they take a clip that was replayed and talked about quite a bit 
especially if the caution, you know, went long and then it's constantly replayed on social media and then you get all of the haters and, and all of the, the, the name calling and, um, you know, you, you get memes and, you know, it, it just, it gets out of control and there's always going to be those, those fans that are just hateful for lack of a better word. And, and you've had them too you know, where they support one particular driver. And if they felt that that driver was taken out unnecessarily, they are just downright rude and and ugly on social. So I think it really um, damaged um, his self-esteem and uh, it was difficult, you know, to to build that confidence back up. And especially for someone who had never been in that type of limelight before and was doing really well up till that race. And it it was one mistake. And, you know, as much, you know, the spotter's mistake is his mistake. And, but yet, you know, it, it came down to just probably six months of constant, um, belittling. Yeah. Well, again, he, you know, he stuck, you know, he stuck it out and he, he worked through it and he just tried to come back from that. And so, you know, it was just a year where, you know, with COVID, of course, you know, NASCAR was shut down for a long period of time too. And so, you know, all the engineering on next gen, you know, was, it was at a standstill. So, you know, next gen got really pushed back. And again, the following year, you know, we would, we knew early that we were not really going to be in next gen again, and we were going to continue on. And, uh, so, um, you know, we, got through the year and we were making some gains, uh, towards the latter stage of the year. And, you know, pretty much we're on tap to go into the next year, you know, with the same organization, the same personnel and driver, and really to try to go out and, and, you know, get to the back to racing the way that we would hoped it would be. And we were still in a position late in the year to still know and wait, you know, we're still COVID still going on. It's still, you know, a thing, but we're starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel and that, you know, things were going to maybe change. But I think at that point, NASCAR also knew, uh, by what they had just done, that changes needed to be made. They needed to find ways that we could alter the schedules, alter, you know, keeping people again, because it wasn't over. It was, you know, just, you know, showing signs of being contained and being able to manage it, you know, so that's, that's how things were going at that point in time. And you know, it was just one of those unique years uh, in the world, right? When you think about all the things that transpired and, you know, you realize, you know, just how much you have access to until you don't. And I think, you know, your life as you knew it, you know, was drastically altered. And you look at, you know, supply chains, you looked at, you know, you were worried about not having toilet paper, you're worried about not having paper towels and not having, you know, getting the the things you needed for the team or the car, you know, and you were, you know, doing, you were worried more about a lot of ancillary things, you know, along with the racing program and your life, your life and your livelihood and your, your families, your extended families, It's just, there was just so many vast reaching things, you know, and you think about all the people that, you know, you knew or that were compromised or had certain illnesses or whatever, and you're worried about what's going on in the world with your families, as well as trying to go on a daily basis and keep your people contained and go out and perform and keep yourself in a position 
to make a paycheck, make a living and continue to help support those that, you know, maybe hadn't. So it really was a, a difficult and unique year, but I think a real learning experience for everyone. And, you know, I thought that we weathered the storm really well. And I had a lot of, I gained a lot of respect for, you know, the fact that how hard NASCAR went out and attacked um, every aspect they could to prove that they were capable of pulling this off and going racing and probably the only entity and the only style of racing and the way the mechanism was with all the, the, the payrolls and, and all of the money, the winnings and all those types of things, it just kind of fell into their lap. We were the right time, the right place. And I think it brought NASCAR back after a lull. Mm -hmm. I think NASCAR was in a definite lull and it had lost you know, some intrigue and had lost some notoriety and attendance, still had great viewership, but people were able to look for other means to do other things. And then what it did was it brought it back in the limelight. It put it in front of a lot of people that ordinarily didn't really care about it or maybe didn't really think well, about you're it. you're sitting at home. You can't go out and do any sports and there's nothing else on TV. So I actually think it made NASCAR fans out of this time period. Yes. And it, what it was, it just put NASCAR in your face mm -hmm. and you were not, you were like thriving for it. You wanted anything to watch on TV. I remember just talking to so many people and they were like, I just, I just want to watch something on TV, a sports, I'll do something, sports, right? Sports, yeah. You know, sports. Yeah, it definitely was the age of Netflix and Amazon Prime and, and even podcasts, you know, but they wanted sports. You have your sports enthusiasts and you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a Netflix uh, binge is not going to do it for them. They, they want to watch their sports. And we were one of the first ones back and never took a break after that. And even when drivers um, got COVID there towards the end of the year, they'd put other drivers in and they'd make other protocols so that those teams were protected. Entire teams would be replaced by other substitute teams so that, you know, you did not disrupt the racing schedule. And that schedule did not get changed except for venues. I mean, we raced those 37 races. And you don't realize because it did escalate because we started to have to migrate and and to go to other racetracks that were across the country that would open up. So it was like a chess match, you know, or a checkers game. Everybody was, you were waiting for that particular, you know, state. Waiting to for open California up. to open up. Yeah, you're waiting for them to open up or have leniencies where they could physically allow you to come in and, and run. And then they would alter the schedule and make, an, you know, a change to get you there. And then that opened up another can of worms because now we had to fly. So we had Victory Air and, you know, they were in a position where they had to set up same types of things. You know, we had to have less people on the airplanes. You had to have people between you. You had to have masks at all time. And just, again, it was the next step or evolution of traveling now to these races, but being confined in an airplane now, right, which was going to be, you know, detrimental, you would have thought, right? But, you know, as long as everybody was minding themselves at home and minding themselves. At and as long as they were honest. And they were honest. If you were right. sick and you got on an airplane, you're going to infect those around you. It's just, it's, you know, case in fact. But if you were honest on your questionnaire that, yes, I've been exposed to someone, even if you weren't sick going in, but if you were honest and stayed home and, you know, we were very lucky. The majority of our crew, when they first got sick, they were sent home. We had more isolated cases. We had one extreme case, um, but he did not get COVID from 
you know, from the, uh, from the facility. And I think it really boded well for us because you and I were fierce about keeping those protocols on our standards. And I stood outside the door and took temperatures for six months in rain, sunshine, snow, you name it. I'm outside taking temperatures and making sure that, you know, and you're out there with your questionnaire singing the Pepto-Bismol song. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it might've been comical sometimes, you know, the questions that we had to ask and, you know, but it, really safeguarded the team. And I'm so glad that we came out of it when it it could have bankrupted everyone. Um, But it definitely, you know, we came out of it better. And and honestly, from a marketing standpoint, I have to say it made us think outside the box. My marketing department, my interns, um, we had, you know, a small group, but we worked diligently. I had Aislinn doing a newsletter. um, And Bella was doing really, um, you know, unique things with social media, doing a lot more contests, a lot more campaigns to get engagement with sponsorship because those first six months back, the sponsors couldn't come. And so we had to give them some extra added value because for us as a small team, the biggest thing we offer is the hospitality and the NASCAR experience piece of it. And we weren't able to do that for them. So we were doing actual tailgating outside the track. Like at Michigan, um, we started the tailgating where we'd have cookouts. Sometimes we even had contests like master chefs coming in and, and, you know, doing a meal like our diner chef against, you know, the owners doing, doing steaks and, and unique things. It was a really, um, unique platform for us to do things and add value to the sponsors. And I think they really enjoyed it. And that's why they stayed with us. So it really was a successful year in the end and under difficult circumstances. So we'll stop from there and we thank you for listening and we're going to see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Cope and Instagram at Derek Cope 00 and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.